Welcome to the Wholehearted Eating Podcast, where non-diet nutrition, weight-inclusive care, and integrative health collide. We're your hosts, Dana Montes and Christina Hoyt, licensed integrative clinical nutritionists and body image coaches. And we believe you deserve to have a joyful relationship with food in your body, even if you have a chronic health condition or symptoms that just won't quit. On this show, together and with our guests, we're bringing the real talk, no BS5, with tangible tools to help you pursue health and wellness without obsession or restriction. Remember our disclaimer, this podcast is meant for general information purposes only and should not be taken as a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. On today's episode, we have a return guest, Kara Lowenthal, who is the host of the podcast, Unfuck Your Brain, Feminist Self-Help for Everyone, and the upcoming book called Take Back Your Brain, How Sexist Thinking Can Trap You and How to Break Free, which is coming out in May 2024. Kara is a master certified life coach and had a previous career as a women's rights lawyer. She was also a previous guest on the podcast, like I mentioned, on an episode called Why Losing Weight is Unfulfilling, We Need to Change Our Brains Instead, which was way back in April 2020. So on today's episode, Kara dives into the intricacies of deprogramming and reprogramming the mind around body image. We're discussing the internalized belief that a woman's life hinges on the other side of a weight loss journey, how sexist thinking can trap you in a body image spiral, and how Kara dismantled negative body image and weight-related misconceptions using techniques grounded in science and empowerment, both for her, her clients, and her podcast listeners. Okay, so welcome back to the podcast. It has been actually almost four years since the last time that I interviewed you. I was looking at the air date and it was a different world in April 2020 when your episode came out last time. That but is I'm, a long time ago. It was like a different world ago, right? And mm-hmm. I'm sure we recorded like before the world exploded at that time. Yeah, um, But I wanted to kind of like circle it back there a little bit. But at the same time, I was going through your Instagram and I love how one of your pinned posts, you say like, being a master certified life coach doesn't mean I'm a woo-woo, divine feminine channeling goddess seer who spins the law of attraction <laughs> bullshit. <laughs> this is powerful shit. Evolutionary biology, cognitive psychology, and feminist theory. And I just remember from last time, like, we match energy here. <laughs> like, and I love that so much. So I just wanted to take the opportunity to welcome you back to the podcast. For any new listeners who have not been here since that time, we also have a new co-host since that time. It was over two years ago, but Christina is here as well. So welcome back to the podcast. (laughs) Thanks for having me. I'm glad to meet new hosts, be back on old familiar ground, you know, all the things. Always a good time and always like a uh, straight to the point, cut through the bullshit kind of conversation, which is actually where I wanted to start today. So in your whole brand, and you have always done this, You talk a lot about deprogramming and reprogramming your brain or unfuck your brain, right, which is your entire brand, which I freaking love. And one of the things that Christina and I were talking about before we started recording today and when we were planning for this episode is like we want to get to the deprogramming and the reprogramming as soon as we can. But first, we need to talk about what are the major things that need to be deprogrammed. So on your podcast and in your practice, and we're going to talk about your book later and in your life coaching program and everything like that, what do you find are the biggest things that women need to get at the core of for the deprogramming, specifically related to like body image? Yeah. So I think it's a great question. Um, you know, when I became a coach, this was eight, almost 10 years ago. It's hard to believe. Um, <laughs> nine years ago, uh, the coaching industry was really focused on cognitive psychology and evolutionary biology, which I think are really important, of course. Um, and then traditional talk therapy is very focused on your family of origin. And, um, and those are two big influences on your life. But all of my work is really about um, what I think is the missing third primary influence, which is how society teaches people to think about themselves. And that's specific, particularly important when you're talking about women or any other marginalized group, because it's a huge, huge influence on the way that we conceptualize like our lives, our relationships with our bodies. What all questions like, what is your body for? What is a body? Who are you in your body? Like, what is your, what is the purpose of your body? All of these things are not just influenced by like what your parents said at the dinner table or what 
happened, you know, millennia ago in the hunter-gatherer plains, but like also by what are you absorbing from society? So my work is really about how society teaches women to think about themselves and body image obviously is one big part of that. So there's body image specific thoughts, which I can talk about, but I think at the kind of umbrella level, what society teaches women is that their worth and value are dependent, right? It's like the stock market, like your worth and value goes up and down based on like the collective opinion of everyone who's ever met you at all times. And how your hair looked that day. Like it's just right. Most so many women are just used to this emotional roller coaster of like you can like feel good about yourself leaving the house and like a stranger says something to you on the street and then you feel like you're disgusting and worthless. And then it's like up and down, up and down, up and down. Right. So all women experience that in so many areas of their lives. And it all stems from this socialization we receive, which is that like you aren't valuable just for existing. You're only valuable if you live up to certain social expectations. And so obviously that is huge when it comes to body image, because one of the primary things that women are told is valuable about them is their body being physically and sexually attractive in a very narrow band certain way, primarily to men. Whether or not you happen to be sexually attracted to men at all doesn't really matter, right? The society is still dominated by that belief system that women are sort of physical objects for men's sexual, you know, attractiveness and desire. And so women are alienated from their bodies really early on. And then you can sort of see what that turns into, which is like constant self-critique, constantly evaluating your body like an object, almost like a dismembered object. It's like your stomach is different from your face, is different from your, you know, your cellulite is like all that you're like just these different pieces that all need to be fixed and improved. And you get alienated from your body. So you don't really can't really like connect to it in an animal way, which leads to all of the sort of like starving yourself or binging or purging or restricting or over exercising or whatever, like all these ways of trying to manipulate this physical object as opposed to it being like the animal that you live in. So I think that's that was a long answer, but that's all the shit we have to deprogram. So it's a big project. No light project. I think one of the things that I really appreciate what you what you're saying here is that I think one of the difficult things about it is the social conditioning. Yes, 100%. But I also think too, like as a result of the social con- conditioning that we go through as women at a very young age is also too, how do we orient ourselves in that social conditioning? So we spend a lot of time being like, well, of course, I want to belong in the social construct in which I've been born into. And this is the narrative that I'm supposed to be carrying. And so I think that a lot of times that leaves women having this really deep, dark, like heavy feeling of their life is waiting for them on the other side of whatever happens to their body. And it's usually always body size oriented, especially if you are in a larger body size. I hear that a lot. Um, thinking like, oh, my life is waiting for me on the other side of this weight loss journey. And it's really hard, I think, to reorient yourself in society when society is not changing. You know, like <laughs> we're trying to change it um, and working on it and everything. Um, and there is more of a conversation around how this is bullshit and how we shouldn't be engaging in this. But we still are living in a very highly um, influencing society where body size is a currency. And I think that can be really hard to kind of let go of this this belief of, okay, well, my my life is waiting on the other side of this when the society is the way that it is. And all I want to do is orient myself to belong within that society. And I, I'm curious of like... How do you think like the the starting point of deprogramming that thought pattern can begin um, when sometimes the things around us, like our society and the cultural beliefs that our society carries, are maybe not changing at the pace that we needed to? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a great point. I call this the um like the thin woman on the train. Like you're waiting for the train to come in with the thin version of you. And like, then you're going to be off to your new life. And it's really not even just around body image. Like women are socialized to believe that around partnership and around marriage and around all sorts of kind of, you know, prof- sort of 
perfectionist fantasies of like how once X changes, once I can conform or live up to social expectations in this way, then everything's going to be different. And it's so seductive because just as humans were susceptible to this kind of cognitive error of believing that, I mean, we're also socialized this way, but I think it takes advantage of kind of cognitive biases we have naturally, which is sort of like, once I get this, I'll never have to feel bad again, right? So I call this like the exit ramp off the human experience. Like we're always looking for the exit ramp. It's like once I quit my job, once I make $100,000 in my business, once I lose weight, once I get my Botox, once I get married, once I whatever, right? So I think it's super common. Um, I actually think the first step in the deprogramming is recognizing and actually like grieving the loss of that fantasy. Right. If you have oriented your whole life towards this fantasy that if you just finally lose weight, then you will. I call it an exit ramp from the human experience, because if you ask somebody, what do they imagine they'll feel like when they finally lose the weight or they finally can get the facelift or they find whatever these things that we do to our bodies to try to conform. Everybody's just like, well, I'm just going to feel confident. And I'm going to feel happy and I'm going to feel better being you know, naked. And I'm going to I was in my coach. I told this story before in my coach training. This woman was getting coached on wanting to lose weight. And she kept saying and not even hearing herself, I'm going to like be happier. I'm going to have more energy. I'm going to be younger. She like kept saying she was going to be younger, right? She like, she didn't even hear herself, but like, that's how deep the social programming is around weight loss. So I think that it's like, it's people want to skip the grieving part because they've already felt so bad the whole time about themselves for not doing it. Right. And there is relief on the other side of it, but I think you have to sit with like the loss of that fantasy is actually sort of the first, like it's not the most concrete step. And I can talk about like how to actually identify and change your thinking, which is important. But when I see this not working for people, when people try to move too fast to change their thoughts, it's like they haven't really, like that's such an attractive fantasy. And it may always a little bit be in your brain. Like one of the big misconceptions I think about like, deprogramming, reprogramming, rewiring your brain, whatever it is, is that you're going to, you can sort of like stop thinking one thing, like tell yourself to stop thinking something and then think something else. My brain still like occasionally, if I feel rejected or I feel overwhelmed or I feel I get like a health scare or something, my brain is still like, well, you know, you just need to lose weight. Let's join that program. Like it's, that is just an old neural circuit that will awaken when there's stress. So I think the first step is like, Grieving that fantasy and setting the setting appropriate goals, kind of like the appropriate goal is not I can ice pick lobotomize myself and never have this thought again. The appropriate goal is like this is going to be a long process of me literally creating a new neural pathway in my brain to think differently about about my life, like what the purpose of it is and where I'm trying to get to. I love that you brought that up because that reconstructing and kind of we call it like forging a new path through the forest, right? If you've gone on a hike on the same hike every single day for the last 10 years and you're trying to forge a new path and you have to like move all these trees out of the way and these branches and everything, of course, the easiest way for your brain to go is the one that you've walked for the last, you know, X number of years. And I love that you brought up also like one of the most important things to keep reminding yourself of is that you're not back to step one if you, you know, down the road or every single day still have a thought of like, oh, my life would be a lot easier if I were to lose weight or if I would to, you know, change this to my face or do this to my hair or change my clothes or anything like that. I think, you know, readjusting our expectations and trying to get away from that very perfectionist all or nothing mentality of like, oh, once I start on this journey and pass go, I'm never, ever going to have a negative body image thought again, or I'm never, ever going to have a thought of weight loss again. And what Christina and I always tell our clients and remind people on the podcast is like, you can still use the you know amount and frequency of the times that those thoughts are coming up as a barometer of like, oh, how far can we have we come? But it's more of a, these thoughts will happen fewer and farther in between rather than, oh, these thoughts will never come up again. And it's also more of a, okay, I may have the thought, but I don't immediately have to put a plan into action in order to take action on that thought. Whereas before it may have been, I feel like shit about myself, therefore I need to do a 21-day X starting on Monday, and it's going to be overhaul of diet and exercise, and everything's going out of my pantry, and I'm starting a new skincare routine and whatever. 
And at a certain point in our lives, all of us may have fallen prey to that because we're told and sold in this capitalist society that that's your solution. You want to feel better about yourself? Do something about it, right? And it's like, oh, you must do all of these things. Whereas now, if you have a day where you're like, things aren't feeling great, or like you mentioned, you're having a health scare or things are really stressed or your nervous system is on fire, all these other things. Those old thoughts and patterns may still come up because you walked on that same hike for X number of years. But again, it's going to happen fewer and farther in between. We need to remind ourselves that like, yeah, we do need to go through a grieving process and then figure out, okay, we're sitting with the body grief. We're sitting with all of this stuff while still holding, allowing ourselves to have space for that, because that's probably going to continue to come up throughout our lives. How do we then move to the next step? And if you could also talk about What are some ways that people could know they've allowed themselves the grieving period and they're ready to move on to whatever the next step is? Yeah. I mean, I think it's like a lifelong task to accept that you're always going to have positive and negative emotions. Like every, I mean, I'm sitting here right now being like, wow, I have so much work to do, but I'm sure when the book comes out, I'm going to feel right. Like it's just, I just went on vacation and I was like, God damn it. Every time I got to learn this, that like (laughs) vacation, I that my brain comes on vacation with me. Like it's not, right? So it's just like a natural, you know, it's just such a normal thought pattern that we're just like always trying to get off this human experience. Um, I mean, I think in terms of how you know, I mean, for most people have not done it at all. So if you've like had a good cry, you're on your way, <laughs> I think. If you are, you know, if you've, if you've stopped grieving at all. But it really is about like one of the most effective, I think, sort of techniques to de what's the right word like de-sparklify that like fantasy or something is just just imagine yourself in the body you wish you had sitting home alone on a Saturday night having the same thoughts you have now like we never imagine ourselves in this other state having our current thought patterns and our current negative emotions and everything else right and when I think when you do that it's a really effective kind of hack to sort of begin teaching your brain like this uh, this feeling that I think I'm going to get rid of I'm going to keep having sometimes for the rest of my life right like this is when I was doing this my body image work I would like I live in New York and so literally it's just like a city of professionally beautiful people and I would walk around every time I saw like an actress or a fashion model or whatever I would just go I would just like I would just repeat to myself, like, all being suffer. I would, like, imagine them breaking up with their boyfriend and crying, which, like, not because I'm wishing ill on them, but because in my fantasy world, it was like, well, if you looked like that, nothing would ever hurt you. Even if you broke up with your boyfriend, you wouldn't care. You, It's, like, so dehumanizing in a way, right? Um, When it comes to, like, especially body image, which I think is just, it's so ingrained. Like, it's so... You know, it's some of like the earliest messaging we get, I think, in our fat phobic society. Um, and so I, from I, f- I found that for me, at least it was like a lot of root repetition of new thoughts. But one of the things that I teach that I think is really important, especially in the body image space, is um, what I call like the 10% less shitty thought. Because part of what happens is like there's the reality of your thoughts about yourself, which are like often pretty ugly that you, you wouldn't even admit them to somebody and then there's like instagram is like telling you to believe that your body is a wonderful wonderland right like so i in the book um in my chapter on body image i described this scene that i had gotten from a body image coach that i hired before i found coaching that worked i tried some coaching that didn't work and it was like um i tell the story about how i was told to like light candles and sit in front of the mirror and like sort of practice basically, you know, affirmations that I was like a beautiful goddess. And I just, my brain was like, oh, like, this is not, no. Right? It was like way too far from how I felt. And especially for women, a lot of it gets framed in terms of like what I call gratitude spackling, which is like, you're supposed to like layer gratitude on top of it. Right. So it's just like, feel grateful for what your body does for you. And like, feel just, it's, it's just like all nonsense. So what I really recommend is that people like do not take your, you have to come up with your new beliefs for yourself, right? Like a coach can help you, but you have to figure out what you want to believe and you have to go a little bit by a little bit. So 10% less shitty thought means if you look in the mirror and your thought is like, these wrinkles make me look so old, you cannot go to like, 
I love and embrace the ancient wisdom of the crone. Like that's not (laughs) how you feel. So, I mean, I love that, but I've done a lot of work on it. So you need a 10% less shitty thought, which is like people can be attractive even if they have crow's feet, right? Or like something that is like very neutral that just feels a little bit less bad in your body. So, you know, for anybody who is sort of, I mean, I think it's sort of like there's two levels. If you've never heard that you can change how you think before, probably not because you listen to this podcast. So you probably know that. If you've never heard that, congratulations. That's the most important piece of information you'll ever hear. If you already know that, but you're having trouble doing that, it is probably because you are trying to go too far. You're trying to believe something you don't believe yet. Even if it sounds great, even if the host of this podcast or me or somebody else say the thought, it like sounds like you'd like to think that thought. If you're not noticing any emotional change at all in your body, you don't believe the thought. It's not helpful. So try to just be 10% less shitty to yourself rather than trying to like embrace and love and be so kind to yourself. You're like, we'll get there, but it's a process. I think I peed myself a little bit when you said about the Chrome thing. I <laughs> That was so amazing. I, <laughs> I just like the amount of... I know. I just feel like Instagram has ruined all of our lives. Like just like oh my the God, amount 100%. of like... <laughs> it's like ruined it, and then it's also really fun and entertaining. And then I know, like, but I mean, it's, it's such, such an a dopamine awful... machine. I mean, it just spits. It now, I mean, it's really it's like being a rat in a cage, pressing a little lever. There is helpful stuff on there. Your account is great. My account is great, obviously. <laughs> but a lot of what sort of you just get like the sort of. um I don't know, like the end of the spectrum or just like the kind of affirmations you can see. What I say about a 10% less shitty thought is like, it should not seem inspirational on a graphic of a sunset, right? Like it should not look good on Pinterest. The thought is like, like if your thought is I have a disgusting stomach, sometimes your 10% less shitty thought is like people with a disgusting stomach still deserve love, right? Like it's like sometimes you have to like really accept a lot of the premise or like not fight your brain on it just to make a little bit of progress. And that's never going to be like cross-stitched on a rainbow sampler. (laughs) No, it's never going to be. I think one of the things that I really like what you're saying about the beliefs and something that me and Dana talk a lot about that I think is even can be in some ways like integrated here in the 10% less shitty thought idea and that whole process because i do think that's really important it's like we're not going to go from zero to 60 overnight like that's a bunch of bullshit like it's not happening and that in and of itself is kind of toxic too to pretend that that's where we're headed like that's kind of nonsense right if a trainer was like sure you can run a marathon without ever practicing like well that's probably how you pull a hamstring yeah that's that's how you you fire that trainer (laughs) that <laughs> yeah that too unfortunately we've all had shitty coaches. on instagram so <laughs> yeah um but one of the things that we talk about with those beliefs that like i think is important too and like a, a thing that we'll encourage people to do is is this belief that i'm caring about something or about my body limiting me from having a mm-hmm. like a fuller a like a 10 percent fuller life <laughs> you know what i mean yeah. like I think that could be an easy thing to to look at, too, of like, okay, is this actually something that I want to believe? Do I want to participate in this belief anymore? Or where did I even get this from? Like, sometimes we believe things that we don't even really realize where it came from. And one of the exercises that we do a lot with, with our clients around body image is writing down what they believe about certain types of things and then mm-hmm. saying, where did you learn that? Mm-hmm. Like, I don't know. It's fact. Is it? <laughs> Is it's, it fact? Bro, spoiler alert. It's never a fact. It's almost it's never, never a fact. fact. Yeah, it's never a fact. And yeah. so I think that's like a really interesting kind of part with it too, because I think, I think it's, it's hard, right? Because we're like, well, I care. I'm carrying this belief because I've been taught that this is the way that it is. And I think it's really hard to let go of that when there is so much social pressure and conditioning and there's also privilege in in looking a certain way within the world that we live in. And I think being able to say like, yeah, but that doesn't have to be this thing that I'm constantly going to berate and belittle my body and myself every single day around. And I really love how you brought in that 10% less shitty thought. Because I do think it is important to be to even just like a small conversation of, do I want to hold on to that belief? 
does that belief serve me and myself and my mental health and the way that I orient myself in the world? And how do I want to orient myself? It is our choice, you know, how we ultimately want to kind of be and with our like how we want to 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 like what's the word I'm looking for? Like what we want to carry around with us, like this like huge knapsack on our back of like all this shit that we're carrying around of this pressure that we're under. And I think that starting off at a place of saying like, wow, I just said that about my body. Where did I hear that belief? Is this serving me? And can I make it a little less shitty? Yeah. I mean, I, I think there's, that. Yeah. there's two things that come up for me as you're talking about this. Like one is, um, so I teach a, you know, a model of coaching where you're looking at, you have this thought, how does it make you feel? How do you act when you feel that way? What kind of returns do you kind of create in the world in your own life? And so that's one way of telling you something serving you. But then the second deeper question is like, what is the, so conformity, like looking a certain way, beauty, sexual attractiveness, weight, whatever it is, like conforming to social expectations is a currency that we're trying to trade for something right? What are you trying to get? So just asking, does it serve you? I think like sometimes that inquiry is useful and somebody can see. And sometimes what people will say is like, well, yes, because beating myself up keeps me going to the gym and that helps me stay in shape and that helps me blah, blah, blah. Right. But the question is like, to what end, right? Why are we doing this? You're trying to trade conformity for a feeling of safety that it's never going to produce right? The whole reason I talk about this, I call this socially programmed anxiety. I talk about this in the book that women, you know, humans evolved in the small tribes, right? Of hunter gatherers where you really need everybody's cooperation to survive. And so conformity to social norms was very important and not conforming to social norms was dangerous. You have the same goddamn brain now that thinks that not conforming to what dress size you wear is socially dangerous. And for a lot of human history, being a non-conforming woman was extremely physically dangerous, right? We were financially and physically dependent on protection from men who were enforcing these kind of social norms on us. So there's like a lot of history in it that, you know, it's like, that's a whole other topic. I go into that in the book, but we it's understandable and natural. And we have been taught that to conform in this way will bring us safety and will bring us emotional and physical safety. But it doesn't. Like, that's the big lie of the whole thing. You can read any magazine interview with a former fashion model, and they will tell you that they were desperately afraid of gaining an ounce and hated how they looked and were self critical and had an abusive boyfriend. Like, it's a, even the people who are at peak conformity with this norm, mostly due to genetics, right? The quote unquote lucky, it's not producing what we're told it's going to produce. So, even when you ask yourself, like, how does this serve me? It's like, well, what am I, what are you trying to get in return for this conformity? And you really have to sit with and spend time with all the examples that it doesn't ever deliver it. Like I used to, when I was, this was, this reference is going to date me. So there's more up-to-date ones, but this is back <laughs> when I, like I was doing this work probably 10 years ago on my body image. And there's a former model named Christy Brinkley and all over the news that summer were like terrible tabloid articles about how her you know, husband had cheated on her and whatever else. Like, but it was so powerful to me to be like, you can look like Christy Brinkley and that does not protect you from like the human experience. Yes, she's privileged. She has a lot of money and she's also being like publicly humiliated and cheated on in this horrible way and feeling terrible about herself, I'm sure. Right. And that's not, I'm sorry that that happened to her, but it's just like, there's so many examples out there of the people that were told to emulate that appearance not making them feel good about themselves, not keeping them safe in their love lives from emotional or even physical harm, not, it just doesn't, it's not, you can't get what you're trying to buy with it. And like, but you, that's such an intense, you have to like train your brain to see that over and over because our society is just like a, I don't know, a salesman selling you like a lemon car. It's just like, no matter what you say, you're like, here's my 12th car, it broke. And they're like, this 13th car, this one's a good one. It's totally going to work this time. Yeah. And, you know, it's as I was kind of visualizing as you were speaking about that example and, you know, all of the different things that we've been saying. And it's interesting because 
when if and when people finally do get to this point and they basically have this like major disruption in like, oh, my God, everything that I've been told and like all of my beliefs are not true. It's like, well, fuck, then what? You know, like what? Okay, if you know, because for the longest time we've been fed this lie that's like, oh, if you just if you just attain this unattainable beauty standard, like, you know, your partner will never cheat on you and you'll have so much money and you'll be beautiful and all of the things will be happy and you'll never be depressed again and land of unicorns and rainbows and everything. And now when you're coming to the realization that that is no longer true, it's like, okay, well, what <laughs> what do I do now? And that can be not even getting to the like to-dos and like, okay, well, what do I need to do next? Because that's a whole different thing that I find a lot of women especially fall into is like, okay, well, how do I fix it? You know, like, what's the next thing that I can do? But just sitting there, kind of like we were talking about with you need this stage of grieving your body, is you do at at least a little bit need to sit with like, okay, this is scary. And going through maybe even different stages of like being angry at not only society, but sometimes people get really angry at themselves as like, oh, how could I have been duped by this? And then there's also a grieving stage and everything like that. So if people are in the middle of that mental gymnastics thunderstorm, right, of like, okay, well, you know, I've heard all of this stuff about and I'm starting to refill my social media with feed with stuff that actually doesn't make me feel objectively awful every time that I'm scrolling through social media. It's like, okay, well, now that I know that that stuff isn't true and getting Botox and getting the perfect haircut and losing weight and all of these different things are not going to give me the fulfillment that I was always always promised. How do I start to not only unlearn those beliefs, but how do I then reprogram and how do I move forward and how do I actually make myself feel better when I feel like shit? <laughs> you know, because we can't rely on those old things. Like the good news is that whatever feeling you wanted to trade this conformity for is available to you. It's created by your thoughts. It's not created by your body size, right? So if what you want is like you want your body to look a certain way to give you permission to believe that you're beautiful or that you're desirable or that you're healthy or whatever else, right? That's just a sentence in your mind and you are wanting a circumstance, a thing outside of you. I mean, your body is you, but how it looks is this sort of thing outside of your mind, right? You're wanting that to like give you permission to think a certain way. And you have to take control of that process because if you've trained your brain to be, I mean, this is the big lie of the whole thing. It's like if you train your brain to hate how you look, it doesn't matter even if you set predetermined benchmarks and hit them, you will still hate how you look, right? If you think you look old, you can get Botox and you'll still probably think you look old. If you think that you're fat, you can lose weight and either your brain can still tell you you're fat. Or, I mean, we also know weight loss doesn't work long term and blah, blah, blah. But even in a world where you could, like, your brain's either just going to still tell you that you look bad or it's going to pick a new thing. Now it's going to be like, okay, well, fine. You hit the weight, but like, look at the saggy skin. That's disgusting. That, right? Like, like the you're burn just, book and mean girls. Yep. <laughs> yeah. You're just training your brain. I mean, think of your brain like a muscle. I mean, it, it, this is a metaphor, right? It isn't. But like, it's similar in that you are building a habitual pattern in your brain. So just like, when you drive somewhere that you know how to get, you don't have to think about it. Your brain does not have to think about how to get to your self-loathing. It will just get there. Changing the car you're driving is not going to change it. But the good news is that all you want really is to have a certain feeling. You want to believe something about yourself and feel something about yourself. Everything you want, the reason you want your body to look different, the reason you want your clothes to fit different, the reason you want, even the reason you want the partner or the whatever is because you want to feel a certain way. The part of your brain that does motivation is real basic. It just wants to feel, avoid pleasure, avoid pain, seek pleasure. So the the sort of best way to reverse engineer it is to ask yourself something like, okay, if my body looked exactly to my perfect specifications, what is it I would be thinking and feeling? And see what comes up for you, right? It might be confident. It might be beautiful. It might be safe. It might be sexy. It might be you know, more of a thought like, you know, I find I'm good enough. I finally did it. I am worthwhile. I am valuable, whatever it is. You just figure out what that thought and feeling is. And then you have to practice learning how to create that for yourself, right? So I talked about like the 10% less shitty thought. That's like one way of doing thoughts is to take what you have now, move down. And then there's what I teach is called the thought ladder, which is like, if you have a thought you want to believe, you got to like move up in little increments towards it, right? 
But that is really like recognize always getting in the habit of always asking yourself, like whenever your brain is like about something, what is it that I want to feel right now? Or what is it that I want to believe? And then working on building up to that is that's how you reprogram your brain. That's how you rewire your brain, et cetera. You don't start with like, you know, it's like a joke in coaching, but anytime anybody comes from your coaching, yes, on some level, what we're going to end up coaching on is you're allowed to exist, even though you have thoughts and feelings. Like it's going to be your self-worth at some level, but it's just not helpful to like all coaching and therapy can't just be collapsed to that in execution. It's not how your brain works. So it's much more effective to pick a small thing and like, what do I, what do I imagine I would feel if I didn't have these wrinkles? Like if this wrinkle was gone, what do I imagine I would think when I look in the mirror? How can I practice believing little bits of that now and working my way up to it? Yeah, I think ultimately, like what you're getting to is with the thought ladder is over time, your your new thought is my body doesn't disqualify me <laughs> from having confidence, mm-hmm. having joy, having love in my life, feeling self, having self-worth and all of those different things. But you're doing it in very incremental um, pieces of kind of breaking that down so that eventually you can be like, oh, yeah, I, you know, I exist. Yeah. And I would call that like a neutral thought. My body doesn't disqualify me because I think that there's a space after that, which is like my body is a source of joy or my body is totally. a source of safety or my body yeah. is, a, you know, the way that I experience these things. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's important, too. If, if, yeah, I think it does start with like, OK, I can't, doesn't disqualify me from that. And also at the same time, over time, we get to this place where it's finally like, yeah, no, my body does awesome awesome shit for me now. And I can look at it that way and say, I can do a lot of really great, cool things in the body that I am and have a lot of the things that I want to have um, with that and doesn't have to be this barrier for me to obtain some of those things. I think one thing that can be really difficult when we're trying to work through some of this stuff is the bombardment that we get kind of going back to it. It's like, I um, I think in that there's like a book, um, more than a body, where they talk about this thing called body, like body image waves of disruption, like these like disrupting waves. I loved that metaphor. It's like you're going through all this stuff and you're working your way up the ladder, and then you get hit with the paint can. You know, you know, and it's like, damn it, like why do I keep having these paint cans hitting me in the face as I'm climbing this ladder? And I'm wondering if there's something you can share with when someone is working on their thought ladder and kind of working their way up and they keep getting bombarded with comments, whether it's in, it could also come from a place like inside the house and within the people that they really do value their opinion. I think that's really hard when you have like a family member or someone that you really value what they think are slamming more negative beliefs back on you? How do you become, in a way, like, unfuckable? Like, unfuckwithable, or whatever the word of... Yeah, you could also become unfuckable if you want. That's (laughs) Um, not what I was... (laughs) Listen, body neutrality, asexuality, they're all parts of the... All parts of this of the... 100%. So I think there's sort of two pieces to this, which I think I say about everything. Uh, One is... You know, there are there's, of course, you know, comments from friends and family or whatever else. There's also real discrimination against people of size in society. And my work is, you know, it's coaching from an intersectional feminist lens. So it's not that your feelings are the only thing that matter, but it is that your feelings are the only thing you can control. And the big problem, I the, the big like thought error I see people make, whether they are dealing with like their mom saying something or whether they're dealing with like. I mean, I was, you know, I'm engaged now, but I was dating Finding My Partner in New York where profiles constantly say like anything from no fatties to like height and weight proportional or like active and fit only, right? It's like all out there. Oh, yeah. I don't think it's the only place in the world that has that problem probably, but I'm sure it's worse here. But my, like the big kind of, the thing that made all the difference to me was distinguishing between, yes, this sort of, these consequences, these kinds of privilege exist. And what am I making that mean for my personal happiness or ability to create what I want in my life, right? I don't need to date everybody in New York. Even if you're non-monogamous, you only need two to four partners. Like it's not everybody, right? 
you only need a, a, a few. And there are, obvi- there are examples, whatever the thing is for you, there are examples of people who find a partner, let's say, when they're much older. There's examples of people who find a partner when they have loose skin. There's an example. I found a partner as a fat woman. Like, they're out there. So I think part of it is, you know, part of the reason we get so, like, um, we feel so fragile about new beliefs as we're building them and they feel so susceptible to like a paint can, you know, to somebody coming in or any evidence the contrary, is that we sort of, I think we just unconsciously are like, if anybody disagrees with this, then it means it's not true, right? Or like sort of encountering any evidence to the contrary means this isn't true. And so I have to try, I have to like control and convince the whole world to feel grounded in it myself, right? And just being, just being aware of like that feeling kind of in your body, what it feels like when you're sort of like, oh, they have to agree with me so I can agree with me, right? I think that is when you feel very unstable. And so what I think is really effective is just giving other people permission to disagree with you. Like the reason we get so about anything like this, like I had this when I was learning to coach and I was sort of learning this new way of thinking about the world. Like in my family, originally, the proposition that you could change how you thought and felt and that not all your thoughts was true was very alarming to a lot of people. That was not a welcome observation about the world. And that was very like, it felt like this little fragile new belief system I was building. And so I felt very like, you know, in a very like convincing energy about it. And like I had, they had to agree with me and I was upset if they did, you know? And then I just was finally like, why this is so weird that I like, why would I think the people I learned how to think the way I used to think from would all of a sudden agree with me about this, right? So, like, if you learn to shit on your body from your mom, like, this was, your, you know, from your example, like, but of course she's not going to all of a sudden agree with you, right? You're, like, questioning everything that your, you know, family or whoever believed in and taught you and have lived by. So, it's sort of like a, it's it's just like almost a weird entitlement that we get into where we're like, well, I changed my thought about this. So like all of you should too. So in a paradoxical way, like just giving other people, it's really not about like who's right. It's just about, this is why I love just looking at what are you thinking? How does it make you feel? How do you act? What happens? Like we don't have to debate what's right. We just need to look at, well, when I thought what a disgusting pig I am, my feelings, actions, and and returns were not great. And when I think I'm allowed to eat lunch. My feelings, actions, and returns are a lot better. So it really doesn't matter whether anybody else agrees with me that I'm allowed to eat lunch. Like th- what I can come back to is even if I'm wrong, even if someone could prove to me I shouldn't eat, like if I can look at what's happening in my life and see the benefit, I think that's how you ground yourself in those moments and just give people the permission to not agree with you. Just pretend you're a magnanimous ruler granting them permission. I mean, it's all made up. They're already allowed to think what they want. But it's amazing how much it dissolves your resistance to just be like, with your wand, you are allowed to think this. Like it, it, it changes it for you. It reminds me of this conversation that I was. I've like been low key obsessed with this thought pattern. I had a conversation with a therapist colleague of mine. Um, <clears throat> I don't know, like maybe a month ago, and the way that they were talking about it is like the way that we manage boundaries. And they always picture it. They said the way that I envision and the way that I picture it is through hula hoops. I have my hula hoop and then they have their hula hoop. Whatever they're doing in their hula hoop, there's literally no room for me in their hula hoop because their hula hoop just fits you in it. And I think that's such a great way of saying it is like, okay, when am I trying to bring my hula hoop into their area? I can't control the way they're thinking and their perception of what it means to keep themselves and me safe. I've done what I needed to do to manage how that feels for me. That's also a very personal experience for them that I have no control over. And I really love the way that you're describing that and saying like, they're allowed to think whatever they want to think. And also, it's such a great point to just say the people who who maybe perpetuated this thought pattern for you or helped create the scaffolding for that is not not, are not overnight going to be like oh shit you're right right where you're like well i read a book on health in any size and why haven't you all the other thing that helps me have compassion for that especially when it comes to women and their mothers which is very specific is like women have been socialized for so long to believe that this is how you procure safety in the world And it's like, that's something that mothers have been passing down to daughters for generations, right? And like, even though we know it's harmful, 
that has been a form of like protection and a form of trying to protect your child. So it may come across as and feel critical and hurtful, and I'm not saying it shouldn't, but when you just think about all that socialization, right? It's like you're, and think about how hard it is for you to change a thought pattern and you want to, and you went out and researched it and you, you know, and then you're like expecting someone who hasn't done any of that to like all of a sudden agree with you. And this, if you look for this pattern, you'll see it like everywhere. You don't feel supported. It's so often like I had this with my, when I decided to quit being a, I was running a think tank at Columbia Law School and I decided to become a life coach instead. And like, I was originally like mad that my parents thought it was a bad idea. And I was like, what the, what am I talking about? Why would my parents think this was a good idea? Like they're all lawyers and entrepreneurs and doctors. They raised me to do this. They very generously paid for my law school. I had this very stable, like prestigious mainstream career. Like in what world would any, would parents of that person be like, yeah, this sounds like a great plan. You have no business experience. We don't even think life coach is a real thing. You should go do that. You know? They actually are supportive now, but it was like so weirdly egocentric and entitled in a way. Not, I don't mean that as a criticism of myself, but just literally being only in my own perspective to be like, I can't believe they're not supporting me and don't think this is a great idea. Like, no, that's nonsense. <laughs> like eyes in your own lane. Right. Yeah. And, you know, I, I'm sure we've all been through that as all people who completely changed careers from like our, our stable careers to like starting our own businesses, going back to school for all of this stuff. But um, one thing that this conversation is reminding me of is a quote on your Instagram that I just love where you talk about how no amount of external validation will fix what you don't like about yourself. And so if you, you know, if if you all remember nothing else from this episode, which I'm sure you will remember the 10% less shitty conversation, I'm sure you will remember that listeners. But if you're really struggling with like, why am I still in this like in-between phase where I'm having a little bit of cognitive dissonance where I know that like doing all of these things to myself and putting myself through the ringer and everything is not going to make me feel better, but you still feel like you're tethered to this other side of things as well. Just remember that like the internal stuff has to come first and you don't have to be a missionary to kind of change everybody, even if it would make your life a whole lot easier that you know, when we all just went home for the holidays, if people just wouldn't make these kinds of fat phobic comments or like unsolicited things about food, it's like, thanks for projecting your own insecurities and beliefs onto me. I'm trying to keep my eyes on my own plate. But if you can remind yourself of like, I'm just trying to work on the internal stuff. I'm trying to work on the me stuff. And that's the stuff that needs to happen first in order to make progress on this journey before we can kind of go out and change the whole world. But at the same time, it's like, and I, I think about this all the time in terms of like body image and diets and everything like that. It's like when you are so constantly focused on yourself and like trying to shrink yourself or what is trying to shrink you, it's impossible for you to go out into the world and make the change that you have the capacity to make because all of this other stuff is really just trying to shrink you. And especially as women, but really anyone out there, if you're constantly critiquing yourself and being like, I can't do this because, you know, I don't have the prerequisite of this body in order to go out into the world without discrimination or anything like that. It's just so, it makes me so angry. <laughs> I didn't think I could be a coach because I thought who's going to trust a fat coach before I did my body image work like I didn't I was like, well, obviously nobody would hire me because they would just be able to look at me and see that, like, I don't have my shit together. Right. And so, like, if I had stuck with that thought pattern and never changed it, like I wouldn't have. Like I have a podcast that has 45 million downloads and has reached thousands of people all over the world. I have a book coming out. I have, I have thousands of women have gone through my, like I wouldn't have helped any of these people. I wouldn't have developed like this original body of work that I, you know, my legal academic career was like fine, but I was not particularly brilliant in it. Like I, I wouldn't have done any of this if I had kept that thought. Right. And that, and that was not even something as direct as like, oh, there's dating discrimination. That was just the world telling me like, you know, if you're going to have any advice or in or any valuable input for anyone ever, you also have to be thin, which makes zero sense. But that was what I had absorbed. But I feel like that's such a powerful example of like whatever you're here to do in the world. If you're spending all your time like criticizing your thighs and dizzy because you're hungry and or, you know, numbed out because you're binging, like either way, you're not creating what you're here to create. I mean, I think that's where we end the episode. That's what yeah, I that's like an a hear. amen like, all around. Boom, amen. I got <laughs> nothing to say, and I'm a chatty lady. So, <laughs> so <laughs> there's like nothing to say after that. It's so true. It's so true. Everything you said was 100% accurate. Stop holding ourselves back. 
Boom. Climb the ladder. <laughs> Climb the thought ladder. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Amazing. Okay. So please tell everybody where they can find you. Your book is not coming out yet, but it will be in a couple of months when this episode You can pre-order drops. it now, and you get amazing bonuses Ooh. when you do. Yes. Oh, so <laughs> go to takebackyourbrainbook.com. So the book is called Take Back Your Brain. You could just Google. But the website, you want to buy it on our website, pre-order it on our website, because we have all of these amazing bonuses, like a 30-day guided journal that goes along with the book and some audio teachings on like people-pleasing and anxiety. And then it only goes up from there. You get all that just for buying one copy of the book. And then if you want to give a copy to friends, a couple of copies to friends, we have a bunch more amazing bonuses. So takebackyourbrainbook.com. And that is where you can pre-order the book. And as anybody who's ever known an author knows, because we will never shut up about it, pre-orders are extremely important. So if you want all those, that's why we give you all these amazing goodies. So, and the book is the same price anywhere you go. But if you come to us, you get all those goodies. If for some reason you don't like goodies and free gifts and learning, you can buy it wherever you find it. It is also on <laughs> Amazon.com and bookshop.org and anywhere you buy books. Awesome. Thank you so much. My pleasure. And if you're looking for me, I am at uh, the School of New Feminist Thought is my company and school. And my program is the Feminist Self-Help Society. So you can also Google those. Boom. Drop the mic and leave. <laughs> I'm out. Hey friends, it's Dana, and thanks so much for listening to the Wholehearted Eating Podcast today. Find us on social media at Wholehearted Eating Pod on Instagram and at wholeheartedeating.com for more information about working with Dana and Christina for one-on-one nutrition counseling. If you love the show, we would love you forever if you'd share an episode with your family and friends or tag us on social media or leave a five-star rating or review wherever you listen to podcasts to help more people find the show. Check out patreon.com slash wholeheartedeating to help support the show and get access to ad-free episodes, bonus episodes with us and our guests, episode discussions, new resources we're creating for Patreon, and so much more. If you have questions for us, feedback on the show, potential topics or guests you'd love to have on, shoot us an email at hello at wholeheartedeating.com and we'll see you next week.